Praise God, we are coming to the end of the year, and we just have a few weeks uh, more to go before the year comes to an end, and it's been such an amazing year, the goodness of God. How many of you just enjoyed the goodness of God? Amen. Hallelujah. We have been looking at this series over the last few weeks. We have been looking at this series from the book of Hebrews in chapter, uh, Hebrews in chapter 2, and we've been looking at verse 3. Hebrews in chapter 2, and we've been looking at verse 3. How then shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? We've been looking at, even as we're looking at this portion, how shall we escape if we, if, how can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation we looked at in Hebrews, we saw had three parts. The first one in the introductory message about this great salvation, we saw this great provision that God has made for all of us. That every one of us, God has made a wonderful provision for salvation. The Bible says that none should perish, but everybody should come to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. It is God's will that nobody should perish. Then we saw after that great salvation, this was no ordinary salvation, great salvation, Subsequent to that, we saw the great danger that faces each of us. And the last few weeks, we've been looking on that, this great danger of neglecting this great salvation. That so many people, after coming to the Lord, the, the entire context of the book of Hebrews is the, the, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish believer group of people that are born again from a Jewish background and telling them, you know, after you've come to the Lord, there seems to be some things that is causing you to neglect the salvation. That you're not able to really walk in the fullness of what God has actually planned for you. And so much of the book of Hebrews, particularly the first few chapters up to chapter 4, he talks about in different ways how you can lose the salvation and we looked at some of these things. So we looked at the peril of neglect. What does it mean to neglect? And today we're going to look at the third and the important part or the closing part, the last of this series called The Great Predicament. How shall we then escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So we want to be faithful to scripture this, evening, this morning time as we look at these portions. The Bible says if you ignore God's provision for your, for your life, for, if you ignore God's provision for your soul's salvation, how will you escape? the consequences of such neglect. Neglect is something we have been looking for the last few weeks. We have been looking at why Christians so often find it okay to neglect this great salvation and okay to neglect, you know, things in their life. If anyone ignores and neglects or refuses the only way to salvation, the Bible says, for there is no other name by which a man shall be saved except by the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Say that loud after me. One name. Jesus. Hallelujah. There is no other name on heaven and earth by which a man shall be saved except by the name Jesus. So we are looking at this. If we ignore the salvation of our soul, how shall we escape the consequences? What I want to say today, what I want to start with saying is that this is about your eternity. This is not about some ideology or some philosophy or some theology. This is about your eternity. It's not about some organization, some church, some ministry that we can walk away from. This is about your tomorrow and my tomorrow. This is about our eternity. And the Bible goes on to say that are we concerned about this eternity? Are we concerned about how 
what consequences are going to be there for some of the decisions that we're making. This is a problem. And it is a, it is a great one because after Jesus has died for us on the cross, after he has died on the cross for our sins, there the, seems to be something that, nothing, that God can't do anything more than what he has done already because he has done everything for life and godliness for us. Amen. He died on the cross. He bought us with a price. He, he, he emptied himself. He did everything. Now he's saying, now, now this great salvation, God is looking forward to your and my response to this great salvation. This great thing. What has God done for us? He died on the cross and then he rose again from the dead so that we can have the salvation. The day we believe in him, that day onwards, we are born again, the word of God says. We are born again. And from the day we are born again, the Bible says, now from that day on, now walk in it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It, does that mean that you, you and I have to live in fear every day? Will I lose my salvation? No. We're not going to live in fear every day. But the Bible says that we live conscious of the fact that this is a trailer. The short life that you and I are living, which seems so, so full of you know, events. The short life that we're living is actually a trailer of eternity. Someone explained eternity like this. You know, they brought this big ball of lace. And you know, this, this huge, long, long lace, you know, it's a ball of lace. And at the two ends, you have, uh, you know, you have the, a plastic wrap. You know, if it is a shoelace, you'll have a small plastic wrap at the end. And he said, our entire life is the length of that plastic wrap at the beginning. And that is our 70 or 80 years. And then he began to unfold or unroll the lace and, and take it on and on. It was a long ball and it kept going and going and going. And he said, compared to eternity, our 70, 80 years is like just the beginning. And the interesting thing is what we do with our eternity, what we respond with our eternity is going to really be the decision we are taking what we decide with our 70 or 80 years is the decision we're really going to be taking for our future. Some people take it very lightly. What do they do? They choose to ignore it. They choose to, uh, they say, no, it's okay. Uh, they're not sure what is going to come of it. So they say, everything's all right. And we can choose, you know, we can choose to say, hey, it's not important for me now. It's okay. I was sharing about a story. I was in another nation with a friend. We were driving on the motorway. And uh, as we were driving down the motorway, in front of us, there was a bus. Uh, we, we saw it swing, and then we saw it topple onto the side. It just went off into the curb. It crashed into the side. And my, we were behind it, and when we saw it, we slowed down, and we saw it. And then my friend looked at me and said, you're a doctor. Shall we go? I said, yeah, let's go. <laughs> we jumped out, and we rushed, you know. So before the first responders could come, we were the people that were just behind the bus. We rushed straight to the bus. And we looked inside, inside of it, you know, it was the foreign nation, so the bus was fully enclosed, air-conditioned, and all of that. And before we knew it, he grabbed a small hammer piece from his car, and we jumped on top of the bus, we broke the window, we got inside the bus, and thankfully the bus was empty. And when the bus was empty, we went straight down, and the driver, he was a little hefty man, he was standing up, thankfully he was well. Maybe because of the, of the, the seatbelt or whatever, he was okay, he, and the bus had toppled to the side, he stood up to his feet. I walked straight up to him and I said, sir, are you all right? And he looks at me and he says, I'm okay, I'm okay. He was so shocked. 
with that accident, he, he, was, he was still in the shock. He couldn't think properly. I looked at him, are you all right, sir? I said, uh, uh, is, is there something? I need to look at you. I said, could you please lie down? I need to take a look at you. And he looks at me and he, and he says, I'm okay. You know, he was like, he was really shocked with what happened. He said, I'm okay, I'm okay. And he called up his wife and now he's on the phone and he's crying on the phone. He goes, darling, I had, you know, honey, I had, a, I had an accident, but I'm okay, yeah, I'm okay, I'm okay. And he was concerned about the legal implications of this accident now because he was the driver for that company and, you know, what's going to happen to his job or whatever, he was afraid. And I said, sir, you need to sit down. I need to take, I need to take a look at you. So while this is going on, you know, the, the first responders came in and, uh, and had got him to lie down. We were checking him and, by the, and, and, and when we found out when we checked him out, we found out that he just had a massive heart attack. And they strapped him in and they put him on an ambulance and took him away to the hospital. And the fact that we were there before the, before the ambulance could come in or their you know, emergency services could come in, I went away thinking about that whole incident for a while. That here I was telling somebody, I need to help you. You need to lie down. I need to... And he, he said, no, I don't need it. And, and that brought a picture to my mind how so many times we go to people and we're telling people, you need Jesus. You need, you need to be concerned about your eternity. And because they're so shaken up by the present, they're unable to focus on the future. Life has just taken them and shaken them up. They're unable to focus on the future. They're... And they're so shaken up by, by, by debt and, and challenges and, and problems and imprisonment and, and, and slander and lies and, and uh, you know, losing your job and, and, and challenges within your marriages and your homes. And you're so shaken up by the present that you're not able to focus on what it means to live for eternity. Hallelujah. And sometimes we spend so much time crying on the phone, telling our loved ones we are going through a difficult time and we won't allow the one that can help us, help us with the truth. I began to think about this and I went away from that place thinking in my heart, now I'm glad he's, he was well and he was okay and, and things were good. But we can't keep ignoring the repeated people God is sending into our lives. The people God has placed to encourage us, pray for us, remind us. We can't keep ignoring that. The Bible says we need to do something about it. What should we do? What should we do? Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1, the Bible says. It says, for this reason, we have to pay closer attention. Can you say the closer attention? Say what kind of attention? What is this giving us a picture of? It's like the picture of going to a doctor. And the doctor, unfortunately, after checking you, has got some bad news. Just like that man, there was bad news for him. He had a massive heart attack and, and he, was, he, was in, he was in shock, but he stood up and, and he was standing there not knowing that he could lose his life. He needed immediate medical care. And uh, sometimes we are in shock like that. And when we go to a doctor and doctor tells us a bad news that, that you're not well or, or maybe you have, if you don't, you, you, got a, you, got a, you got a multiple vessel disease, coronary disease. You got, you got to put a stent and they tell you, you got 90% block in two vessels and 70 in one. And, and now you're shocked. You don't know what to do. And sometimes we look at the doctor and ask, then, so what should I be careful about now? Oh, that's the time you begin to pay a lot of attention. A lot of attention. When we know somehow that nothing else matters 
in our life anymore other than somehow seeing to it that we can live life to the fullest. And the doctor will tell you, oh, you've got to cut down on your salt and your cholesterols and you've got to make sure you're eating healthy and drinking water and sleeping well and, and you, more, more than anything. So what, what about more than anything? More than anything, we need to stent your heart, the vessels in there. And you say, oh, we've got to do that. And now you say, oh, really? How much time? How much money? What will it cost? When should I? Or whom do I? Then we come out, we meet our family and say, do you know any good doctor in town? Can we get a second advice before we go in for... What are we doing? We're paying careful attention to what the doctor was saying. And we'll say, but this doctor said that, and that one said that, and we compare, at least in this nation we can. Some other nations, you go, see one doctor, and that's it, just go, go ahead from there. You don't have an opportunity. This nation, we ask a hundred questions, and then we go to the internet. <laughs> we want to find out whether the notes we compared was right. What were you doing? You're so concerned about another 20 years of your life that you're paying careful attention. If we would do it for our physical body, how much more does the Bible say we need to do it for our own spiritual life? Exercise is good for, for this lifetime. But greater than that is spiritually growing in the Lord, knowing the Lord, walking with God. Hallelujah. So this is what it says. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Which means, we heard it already, the Bible is saying. We have heard it already. It is registered on our mind. But we got to pay closer attention. We got to go back to it. And we got to go back to it. And we got to visit the truth of God's word again and again and again. Because anything that is not revisited will be forgotten. We'll forget what a great salvation. You know, a few weeks ago when I spoke on that message, this great salvation... I went back home that day. I was just sitting there and I was going, wow. And after some, I was going, wow. I was just thinking about what a great salvation this was. I got so excited just thinking about what the Lord has done for us. Amen. So what is the Bible saying? How shall we escape then if we neglect such a great salvation to what we have heard? So what does the Bible say we have to do? The Bible says... We need to pay attention. Why? Why should we pay attention to the salvation? Firstly, we have to pay close attention because Jesus, the reigning king, is proclaiming the salvation to us. Now, you've got to understand the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish born-again Christians. All right? Jewish or believers that came from a Jewish background. So in Hebrews in chapter 1, the foundation premise of this entire discourse of Hebrews, before he asks the question of chapter 2 and verse 3, how shall we escape? The foundational premise he builds everything on is on chapter 1. What is chapter 1? That Jesus Christ is no ordinary person. He's the son of the living God. Amen. Many people, you know, Jesus looked at the disciples and said, who do you say that I am? And they said, well, some say you are Elijah. Some say you are Jeremiah. Some say you are John the Baptist. Now, this is the thing. Many times we build our life on what some are saying. And then Jesus looked at them, but who do you say that I am? There comes a moment in our life where Jesus looks at you and me and says, I understand that you know what some are saying, but I want to know who am I to you, says the Lord. What do I mean to you? Who do you say that I am? Well, for Jesus, when Peter looked at Jesus and said, well, you are... The Messiah, the Christos, the anointed one, 
the son of the living God. That's who you are to me. You are the mighty one of Israel. You are the Messiah that is sent. You are the one that has come to us. And Jesus looks at him and says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father himself has revealed it to you. What was the whole premise? He was saying, Jesus is no ordinary person. That he's superior to the angels. He's superior to, he's superior to, you know, to the, 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 the greatest educationalists or the greatest politicians that ever lived. Or he's superior to the greatest religious leaders that were ever there. No, Jesus was not a religious leader, though the world considers him that. He was the son of the living God. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Who do you say that I am? This was the premise for the entire discourse of the book of Hebrews because he knew that after these Jewish believers came to Jesus, now they started going back to their background a bit and saying, hey, you know what? In our background, they begin to say this and they said about that and some of those things. And they begin to explain. And they were saying, because, because Jesus is the son of God, because he tasted death for you, because he is the one who is going to be the, 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 the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the ending, the everlasting one. He, the Jesus came in Revelation, he says, I was dead, but I am alive. He's the one that overcome the grave. Hallelujah. The graves of so many great people are still empty. Many great people living today, soon they will be in the grave. But Jesus' grave is empty. That makes him outstanding among everyone. He's the one that conquered the grave. Why? Because he goes on, the, the, the writer of Hebrews, he says, I want to make a point here. He says, what is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And then from chapter 5 to chapter 11, he goes on to make a point. In chapter 5, he says, in verse 1 onwards, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men, pertaining to God in order that both gifts and sacrifices, but he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is beset with weakness. He's saying every high priest, every Jew, you know, he's talking to the Jewish context. So he's saying the Jewish high priest and the Jewish priests, all of them are ordinary people. So full of weakness, so full of sin. And they are taken from among the men so these people can feel with the men. And because of it is obligated that they did sacrifices all the time. But for no one takes honor to himself, but receives when he's called by God, even as Aaron was. So he's presenting to these Jewish people, I do understand that you come from Judaism and there was a man called Aaron who was your high priest. And I do understand that you uphold the Mosaic law. You uphold Aaron, the Levitical traditions of the priests. You uphold all of this. Then verse 5 says, So also Jesus did not glorify himself to become high priest, but he who said of him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Thou art in the, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So what is the Bible saying? He's, the, he's telling the Jewish people, just like Aaron was picked up from among the people, as the sons of Levi to become the whole Levitical people to become the priesthood. In the same way, Jesus was picked up as the son of God to become a priest of a new order. Hallelujah. Aaron was picked up for the old covenant, but Jesus was picked up for a new covenant, the Bible says. In chapter 5, he introduces a priest called Melchizedek. Can you say that name again? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. In chapter 5, he introduces this whole concept of Melchizedek. And then from chapter 6, he goes on and says, because we have such a great high priest, Melchizedek, he was heard for his obedience. He was a son. He was made perfect. Moses was a servant, 
but Jesus was a son and he was designated by God. Hallelujah. God himself designated him. Moses designated Aaron. God designated Jesus as the son of the living God. But he was presenting to these Jewish believers why the faith of the background from which they came was a background and Jesus was superseding that religious order. He was bypassing things. And then he comes to chapter 6 and he says, you know, these things, if I tell you, it is too much for you to understand. Because by now you should have been eating meat, you're still drinking milk. If I tell you things about Melchizedek, you may not understand. He saw the whole of chapter 6, he says that, and he says, you paid a price, you have walked with God. I wish there are things I could tell you, but maybe too much for you. But then in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, nevertheless, let me tell you a little more. Because I feel you need to know. And so chapter 7, verse 1, he says, For this Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek. You see, he talks about a high priest who entered into the Holy of Holies. Chapter 6, the last verse. I want you to look at the last verse of chapter 6. He's introducing Melchizedek again again. And he says, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. That's like the high priest entered. He's saying, now Jesus, like the high priest went in year after year after year, Jesus has gone into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. Once and forever, he's become a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. You know what that means? He was saying, there was a change of priesthood order. This is not Levitical priesthood. And then he begins to explain that in chapter 7. What was he trying to tell these people? He was telling them, don't be afraid of the fact that you came, even though you came from the old covenant. Don't be afraid of the fact that Jesus was from another order because he was no ordinary priest. He was no ordinary priest. He was of another order. And then in chapter 7, he goes on, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, Priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. What are you saying? Abraham had a war where he went back and he fought for his nephew Lot and he, and he picks him back. And the king of Sodom and Gomorrah and all, they're grateful to Abraham for rescuing their life. King Sodom is standing there with some offerings for Abraham. And Abraham literally, if you may, will say, hey, you know what? Uh, nice knowing you, but I got a meeting with Melchizedek. So thank you. Uh, just hold on there. Hang on there. Abraham goes... And he does not take anything from the spoil of these people. He goes to his own home and takes one-tenth, the Bible says, of everything he had. Everything. One-tenth. And when Melchizedek comes, he goes to Melchizedek and gives him a tenth of everything. And there, they bring out the bread and the wine. And they break bread. And they have communion. And this was a type, a reflection of a high priest by faith, that Moses was there, was a, was a point of, a, of the old covenant, but Abraham before Moses. Why? He was the father of faith. He did not come to God through the law because Abraham, listen to me carefully, was not, was not a Jew. He was a father of the Jewish nation, but at that time, he was not a Jew. He had come out of Iraq. He had come out of you know, Babylon, of Ur of the Chaldeans, of the Chaldean region. And he just began to worship who he called God of heaven. The mighty God of heaven. So there was no religion behind him. It was a relationship. Are you listening to what I'm saying? It was a relationship. And you know, God is like Abraham calling you not to a practice of religion. He's calling you God of heaven. People could call God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac and God of my father Jacob. God, Abraham had no such God's name because he couldn't call God of my father. His father Terah was not a worshiper of Yahweh God. So he said God of heaven. 
And he bless, Melchizedek blesses him. And he begins this journey of faith. The Bible says, whose children we are if we walk by faith. We might not be the children of Jacob. We might not be the children of Isaac. But we are the children of Abraham through faith. Hallelujah. That's the journey that he begins and he introduces. And what does he say about Melchizedek? Verse 2. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils was first of all the translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, which is the king of peace. So Melchizedek was called the king of righteousness and he was called the king of peace, which is a type of Jesus. Uh, that Jesus was the, is the king of righteousness and he is the king of peace. Without father, verse 3, without mother, without genealogy, which means he was saying he's, you, you don't connect to Jesus because of the tribe he comes from. You don't connect to Jesus because of the genealogy he comes from. The son of so and so and the son of so and so and that he came from pedigree. You don't connect to him like Apostle Paul said, Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of you know, Benjamin concerning the law. You don't connect to them in pedigree. You don't connect to them because they come from a Jewish background. You don't connect to them because they have the understanding of the Hebraic scriptures. You don't, you know, some people nowadays are going back into Hebrew roots. Now, as Christians, when you go back into Hebrew roots, there's nothing wrong with knowing some of the, the historical concept, backgrounds and, and understanding some of the things of the historical Jewish practices and all that, if they all are pointing to the Messiah. But the problem is, nowadays, many of the Hebrew roots, they are saying the Messiah is pointing to the Hebrew roots. It is a different thing when you say the Hebrew roots, you will get an understanding of the Messiah. But now, when the Messiah becomes the way to the Torah. Now that becomes a problem. Why? Because everything was through him. Everything is by him. And everything is for him in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All things are for the Christos. The Christ, the anointed one. Nobody can take that place. No people group. No book. No kind of ideology. No kind of background. No one, not even our own family tree or the pedigree we come from can take that place. In, in Christ, you know, Paul says, I praise God. You know why he goes on to say that? He said, Paul says like this, I praise God from whom every family on earth derives its name. He was going straight for pedigree. He was saying, don't talk about your pedigree. Talk about your eternity. Talk about the high priest who you're believing. Talk about the Messiah. Talk about the anointed one. Don't talk about the pedigree. Don't talk about things that are going to. That's why he, he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. He says, Timothy, you know, remember the prophecies that were given to you by the laying on of hands. Don't get yourself into, oh, you know, old wife tales and all kinds of genealogies and gossip and all these things. He said, focus on the kingdom that is coming. Amen. Don't waste our time over this. And he goes on again, in Mel as he goes on about Melchizedek, he explains about that this in verse, verse 8 and 9. And in this case, in chapter 7, verse 8, and in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in, the case one in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. That's Melchizedek, which means Melchizedek received a tithe from Abraham. And verse 9, and so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes and paid tithes, for he is still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. 
which means the Levitical priesthood who receives the tithe also gave tithes through Abraham unto Melchizedek. Amen. Which means that old covenant priesthood has to submit itself to the new covenant priesthood that God has brought along. Amen. Because the lesser one, the Bible calls the old covenant priesthood the lesser priesthood and the Messiah's new covenant priesthood the higher priesthood. Hallelujah. No, the Messiah is not pointing to the old. The old is pointing to the Messiah that he is the Alpha and the Omega. Everything else was a shadow. And he goes on to explain in verse 15 and this is clear. Still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not in the basis of the law of physical requirement, he did not, Melchizedek did not become the high priest of God because he was from a particular tribe or a particular nation or a particular group. He became a high priest. In fact, concerning Jesus, he says Jesus would be disqualified according to the Torah to be a priest to be a Messiah for the world. But he came from another priesthood of Mel Ma Melchizedek. So what is the writer of Hebrews saying? We are not connecting to the Messiah through Jacob and through Isaac. We are connecting to the Messiah through Abraham, our father. And what was it that Abraham had? It was not the circumcision. It was the faith of Abraham. That Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. How many of you believe this morning in the son of the living God? Amen. That faith in Jesus is counted as your righteousness. They're saying, Lord, not my pedigree, not my background, not any of those things. But I believe you. I want to walk with you. I want to live for you. Who has become, verse 16, who has become such not on the basis of the law or the Torah, or the physical requirements, but according to the power of an indestructible life. What was Jesus saying in Hebrews? He was saying that you are not going to be known for your pedigree, your faith, your practices, your ceremonies, your law, but you, Jesus was known because of the indestructible life that was upon him. Hallelujah. And he says, for we witnessed him, thou art a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And the Bible says, therefore God is bringing, verse 22, so much more and more. Also Jesus has become a guarantee of a better covenant. Amen. It was not the covenant of sacrificing year after year. It was not the covenant of do's and don'ts. It's not the covenant of if you keep the 10 commandments, you'll go to heaven. If you break the 10 commandments, you're going to hell. It was not the covenant of that. It was a covenant of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It was a better covenant, the Bible says. In chapter 8, he goes on to explain the whole thing and comes to verse 13. And he says, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. The first one, Hebrews 8 and verse 13 says, when this new covenant came, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first one, what? What happened to the first one? So don't let anybody come back to you and drag you to the first one. Now the problem is people say that Jesus said that he did not come to break the law, he came to fulfill the law. And that is absolutely true. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. But for that you have to understand something. There is a storyline in the Bible. There is a story and it starts with the covenant with, you know, the, the fall of man and the covenant with Abraham and, and subsequently how Isaac and Jacob had a covenant and the nation of Israel was formed and, and then God made a covenant with the people of Israel. And then through that, you know, when Yeshua called the Messiah comes through the people of Israel, he comes as a Jew, born of the tribe of Judah, outside the Levitical priesthood who had no right to offer any sacrifice 
in the temple. He came, but in an order or a higher order of Melchizedek, and he died outside. The Bible says, and that lamb would be, you know, would, would be, his blood would be shed or sacrificed outside the city in the same way Jesus was hanging on a cross outside the city. He fulfilled the messianic prophecies that were there that were spoken about him. And then in Luke's gospel, chapter 24 and verse 44, Jesus says something very powerful. Look at this. And he said to them, these are my words which I speak to you, spoke to you, while I was still with you. Now, I want you to understand, Luke 24 is after the resurrection. How many days was Jesus with the disciples after the resurrection? 40 days, all right? So for these 40 days, Jesus, this conversation is Jesus in that 40-day period. What is he saying? These are my words which I spoke to you. Who is he speaking to? To the disciples, to the apostles. He's telling them which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he explained to them everything that I told you before I, I died. Everything has come to pass. And I am the one that the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms had spoken about. And then for the next 40 days, listen to me carefully. He does not stay back and teach them about a kingdom or, you know, some kingdom or some family name or tribe pedigree or all of that. The Bible says for the next 40 days, he taught them about the kingdom of Israel. Hallelujah. Now, some people, he taught them about the kingdom of heaven. Now, some people say the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of Israel. But when Jesus came to preach by the, river, by the Sea of Galilee, he said the kingdom of God has come, which means by his coming, the kingdom of God came. It was not a kingdom of the earth. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this earth. It was, he was not talking about a physical nation that God was going to join you and me to. The kingdom is not of this earth. Otherwise, my people would have come and fought, he said. But the kingdom is of heaven. What does he go on to say? He is saying that when he came, when he proclaimed the kingdom of God is at hand, he was actually proclaiming until then, even though the kingdom of Israel was there, God was building an ecclesia, the house of the living God a people of his own. He says, we are not of any particular group or tribe. What does he say? He looks at them and says, you're not known by a pedigree, but we are a chosen generation. We are a royal priesthood. We are a peculiar nation. Amen. He is not talking, what is he saying? We are not of that nation of Israel. We are a peculiar nation, which means God, who has called, whom God has called forth out of darkness into his marvelous light to show forth the praises of his, his, his people. Which means God was saying, before I was going after a nation of Israel, now I'm going after a, a peculiar people, a holy nation, a totally different group of people, a kingdom of God that God is establishing. When he said this in chapter 9, and he goes on into chapter 9 and chapter 10. In chapter 10, in chapter, chapter 9, he goes on to say, for the, for the Torah, for the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come, he was saying the old covenant law, the Torah, is a shadow of things to come, after his, you know, of things to come, and not the very form of things. It can never, by same sacrifice year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those are drawing near. He was saying that law was for a season until Jesus came. And then he goes on to say, but look at verse 9 of chapter 10. And he said, behold, behold, I have come. To do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Amen. Which means the Bible is saying, why are you going back to those things? 
Don't go back to, oh, this day or that festival or this new moon or this way of eating or we should eat, we shouldn't eat this or we should eat that. He says, don't go back to, don't touch, don't handle, don't this, don't that. He said, that is going back to always. And he's talking about in verse 9, he says, he takes away the old covenant, which the Bible calls in Hebrews obsolete. And he now has given a new covenant in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified. So did he cancel the old covenant? No, he didn't. He fulfilled the requirements of it. He fulfilled the requirements and he's now saying a better covenant has come. That one, that righteousness that's coming from that is obsolete. A better thing has come than that. And this is why Paul goes on to say, now I want to move you into something better. What is better? He talks about, he says, I want to move you into a life in the Holy Spirit. If by the Spirit. Why? Because, now some people say, well, Jesus did not really cancel the old covenant. He just fulfilled it. So that you can, now like Jesus lived for the old covenant, you will also live for the old covenant. That's why some people come, new teachings come along all the way. So because some people, Jesus lived for the Torah, so you should also live for the Torah. No, Jesus didn't live for the Torah. Jesus came so that he can set the people free and and he can take the kingdom of God back. Now, if Jesus was pointing towards the Torah, he would have pointed back to Levitical priesthood. Are you listening to me? If it was pointing back to the old temple, to the old sacrifices, to the old covenant, then he would have definitely said, I know I came from Judah, but guys, I want you to focus on the Levites. Because they are the ones who can... No, he didn't. What did he say? The old one became what? Obsolete. And the new one. What does it mean by old one became obsolete? It means he fulfilled every requirement. Amen. He completed it. He said, it is finished. This is it. We have done it. And Jesus is saying, because of this, he's saying, I want you to pay close, close attention. And he goes on to say, why else should you pay close, close attention? Because of the past history of judgment. That when it came through the angels, the Bible says, that when it came through the angels, it was being fulfilled. And then he goes on to say, why else? He said, when the angels came and said, there's going to be a judgment about something, it happened. And if that happened, he goes on to say, why should we pay close attention? Because now it's not the angels. God himself is speaking. In times past, God spoke to us through the prophets. But now he's speaking to us through the son. He's saying because Jesus himself is reminding us. He's saying that after all these things, how can we neglect such a great salvation? If we go on sinning, Jesus came 2,000 years ago as a savior. But he's going to come back as a judge of the whole world. Amen. He's going to ju- come judge the quick and the dead. You know, today, we are, sitting, we are sitting today in judgment in our own heart. We are judging people, people's motives, people's opinions, people's interpretations. We're doing all that. Just the other day, someone was saying, don't question the, you know, don't question the uh, people that are interpreting the old covenant because they sit in the seat of Moses. They sit in the seat of Moses. So you quietly have to, you know, learn. Look what the Bible says about that. It says, oh, you, because you're thinking he's sitting in the seat of Moses, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Now the main point is what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Oh, hallelujah. He's not seated on the seat of Moses, 
He is seated on the right hand of the throne of God. And he, the Bible says in the book of Ephesians, now that we are saved, we are seated with him at the right hand of the throne of God. Hallelujah. We are a peculiar people. We are a holy nation. We are a royal priesthood. Hallelujah. No, we don't come from a pedigree, but we are now made of a higher pedigree, heaven's pedigree. Hallelujah. How did that happen? Was it by circumcision? Was it by clothes you wear? Was it by practices and ceremonies? What is this? Is the church background you come from? He says, no, if by the spirit of God. Hallelujah. God is not calling you into legalism. Neither is God calling you into lawlessness. Now, some people go the other extreme and they say, you know what? We can live how we want. But Hebrews 10, 26 to 31 says, you know, again, talking to a Hebrew context, he said, I didn't call you for legalism. He said, I didn't call you for lawlessness. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Now, I want you to look at this very carefully. He said, there is going to be a judgment. And, I, and who is he talking to? Believer or unbeliever? Let's check it out. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three. Who is he talking to? Why does he quote this? Because he's talking to Jews. People from a Jewish background. And he's reminding them, you know, in your religion, in your faith, people that came from that background, anybody did that, you die. How much severe punishment do you think he deserves who has trampled under the foot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And has insulted the spirit of grace. He's insulted the spirit of grace. You know what is he saying? He's saying here are people who after coming to Christ, they think it's okay to live continually in sin. Why? They're not taking care of their life. They're just neglecting their salvation. Because they don't know what a great salvation God has done for us. Hallelujah. He's saying I want you to take careful heed. On one side, we have a group of people that are saying you got to follow the law and you got to follow this and you got to follow the traditions you got to follow the practices you got to follow Jewish systems you got to follow kosher foods you got to follow all these things and you know what they tell you things and they don't keep it themselves they say we got to keep the sabbath but here's the problem with the sabbath they they say you got to keep the sabbath but uh, and we shouldn't break it but they don't keep the sabbath fully themselves and the bible says if somebody breaks the sabbath you're supposed to be stoned Oh, well, so we keep the Sabbath when it's possible on Saturdays, but don't talk about stoning. Then they say, no, we got to, or, you know, they talk about various different things, but they, they talk about Talmud laws and Jewish laws, but they don't keep all of it. And so what they do, this is whom Jesus prophesied about. He said, you sit at the seat of Moses and you put burdens upon people that they cannot carry and you will not lift a little finger to help them walk in that. God was saying, don't go after legalism. And God was saying, don't go after lawlessness. Don't go after people who will tell you, it's okay, live how you want. Everything's fine. Lawlessness. God has not called us for legalism. God has not called us for lawlessness. God has called us for a life in the Holy Spirit. That's what God has called us for. That is a life of liberty. We enjoy that liberty in Christ. We don't follow him because we have to. We don't follow him under the weight of self-righteousness. We follow him because of the mercy of the cross. Oh, what a beautiful savior. Oh, what an amazing grace that has come upon our life. 
For we know the Lord is going to judge his people. He's talking about people whom he did sanctify, was sanctified. That's talking about born again. And he says, the Lord's going to judge his people. You see, and then he says, let there not be any immoral person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit, he's, he's reminding us, I want you to watch your life. He's telling the Jewish believers, like, like Esau gave up his birthright and then after that when he started, he didn't get it. In the same way, don't think that the last moment of your life you will say, Father, please have mercy, I'm coming with you. He's saying, now that you've known this, I want you to start walking in obedience. I want you to start in ob- walking in the fear of the Lord. I want you to walk. I want you, he says, you know why? Because you've not come to an Old Testament law. He says, you've not come to a mountain that can be touched to a blazing fire, to darkness, a gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and sound. He says, you've not come to Mount Sinai. You've not come to the Old Covenant. He's saying, why should you be more careful? He says, because you have come to Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? The church of the living God. He says, you're not Old Covenant stuff. You're not old wine. You're not old wine and old wineskins. Your new wine that is being poured into a new wineskin, says the Lord. Hallelujah. If you mix the old and new together, it will rupture and the whole thing will break. Don't mix the legalism and lawlessness alone. You go after the life in the spirit of Christ. Hallelujah. Being filled with the Holy Spirit and walking in the Holy Spirit and living. And he goes, you have come to Mount Zion. What is the Mount Zion? The city of the living God. The ecclesia of God, the church of the living God is called the city of God. What is the ecclesia? He says, you're not a Sunday gathering. He says, you are the gathering of the courts of heaven. He says, you have come among myriads of angels. Do you know right now, as we worship God, there are angelic hosts that worship with us. There are, there are, you, he says, when you come to the house of God, there are myriads of angels, angels standing by. To watch the sons and daughters of God worship Him. When you're just singing out and saying, Lord, I, it's amazing grace. And Lord, what an amazing salvation. Angels are like, yes. Yes. We have seen it from the beginning, they say. He says, we come not just to that. We've come to the firstborn, that is Jesus. And the name for, for the, to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You know what that says? It says, those of us that are born again, your names are written down in the book of life. Hallelujah. He's got a name there. And he says, you have not come to an ordinary place. You've come to the place where the judge is seated. So when you come to worship God, two or three are gathered. The the ecclesia gathers, people gathers. The Bible says, you're gathering in the courtroom of heaven. When we come to worship God, when we come to pray, we are gathering in heaven's courts and the judge is seated there. That is why in the house of the living God, ecclesia, Anybody that walks in the flesh, behaves in the flesh, responds in a fleshly way. He says, I hear there are quarrelings and fightings and, and fleshly carnality and somebody sleeping with your, your father's wife. and somebody. He, Paul wrote, wrote all of that to the Corinthians. Why did he write all that? He says, in the court of heaven, this is happening? Isn't it a shameful thing that the believers who claim to love Jesus are living like? He says, you've come to where Jesus is God is judge and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We have a great cloud of witnesses. Hebrews 12, they're just watching and you know, they're not dead. They're alive. They're cheering you. They're looking at you and say, come on, brother. Come on, sister. You just a little more while to go. Let's live faithfully. Don't get into all kinds of deception and don't get into lawlessness and legalism and all these things. And he says, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. 
If that's the case, the Bible says our God is a consuming fire towards the falling away and the deserters. He's going to come back as judge. He came first as savior. He's coming next as a judge of the living and the dead. If that's the case, then what are some of our reflections in closing today? What keeps you and me from hearing God? What keeps you and me from, from pursuing the voice of God every day? What keeps you and me from repenting? What keeps you and me from, what are the things of our life that are causing us to drift? Is it, what, 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 is, what is taking you away from seriously pursuing the faith? What spiritual strategies can keep you from drifting? The word of God, meditate on God's word. Worshipping God every day. He alone is worthy of our worship. If you keep these strategies, simple, simple things. Fellowship, staying in fellowship with the believers. Discipleship. Get discipled. Share the gospel. Tell people about Jesus. What about your church or the care cell group that helps you avoid drifting? Are you in fellowship? with people that can help you from drifting. People who will tell you, come on, you've come thus far. You haven't come thus far to give up now. Many people isolate themselves from fellowship. Are you part of a care cell? Are you worshiping God? Are you part of a family that will pray for you and, and encourage you and stand with you? And, and, and when, when you need help, they will, they will stand with you. You know, as the church grows, no, no one person can be there for everybody. Everybody, the job of the church is for us to be a family and, and care for one another. Do you have caring and meaningful relationships? Maybe, maybe you're not part of a care cell. Maybe, maybe you've not been regularly coming someplace. Do you have caring and meaningful relationships in your life? Maybe someone who would call you up and, and say, are you, are you walking with God? Or how are you doing today? How's your marriage? How's your, how's your faith? Do you, do you allow people into your life to, to encourage you so that you don't drift away? What elements of, your, of the culture may be causing the church to drift away? Is there anything in our culture? Is there our education or ideology, information that we get from people around? Or our busy lives, we just don't have time. We're just so busy, we don't have time. Or our relationships, people we care about stopping us from pursuing God. We're thinking we've got to choose between God and someone who we care about. And they say it's either Jesus or us. And you, or me or whatever, you've got to make a choice. Are these relationships stopping you? Is your lack of training or lack of discipleship causing you to drift away? Is the fact that you're not in a place of fellowship because you're not regularly, but Hebrews 12 says, do not be in the habit of not going for fellowship because someone in the habit of doing that, especially as the day is approaching. Have you had a recent encounter with the Holy Spirit? When was the last time? You just encountered God in such a mighty way that you sat there in His presence and just wept. You said, Jesus, you're all I need, Lord. You're the most important person. Nothing else matters to me, Lord. When was the last time you allowed the Holy Ghost? Every eye closed in the presence of God. When was the last time? What aspect of this great salvation? What aspect of this great salvation are you so grateful for? You're sitting back and you're saying, Jesus, I, I'm so grateful, Lord. I'm so grateful. My heart is one of gratitude. I'm just so grateful. 
how would you tell somebody about Jesus? If someone, if your co-worker would come and ask you, tell me about your Jesus, would you tell them about Jesus? Or how would you tell him? Well, you could tell him them in such a simple way that Jesus, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But because we have sinned, there was no way Jesus came and died on the cross in our place. And he died and was buried and he rose again. He's gone back to heaven, but he's coming back as a judge. Will you receive Jesus as your savior? What aspect of the salvation? What can you do to make sure that you are not going to neglect this salvation? Today, the Holy Spirit is reminding. He's reminding us today. salvation with which you have laid down your life for us Lord and Father we want to spend the rest of our years paying careful attention to this great salvation we know it has been not by might not by power by your Holy Spirit it's been your amazing grace that has saved us we're so grateful Father and so today we come back and if there's anybody here this morning time that has not given your life to Jesus I want to challenge you to give your life to Jesus Come back to God. Walk away from legalism. Walk away from lawlessness. Walk into a life in the Holy Spirit. A life full of the the laws of Christ. A life full of the laws of Jesus Christ. That you will be filled with this wisdom and understanding. Father, I thank you for this day. And I pray I commit the whole church. Lord Jesus. Lord, we are yours. The church is yours. Our life is yours. Everything we have is yours. And so we submit our lives and give you the glory in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said aloud, Amen.